Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy, Holy Mary, Mother, Mother of God, God pray, pray for us sinners, sinners now and at the hour of our death. Saint Amen. Saint Matthew, pray, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. So speaking about the readings, were there any questions um, the documents you asked to read that kind of were not clear or were not um, not evident or I mean, it was not uh, obvious or should have been go deeper or otherwise okay? Yeah, I guess, Father, I would ask if you know, um, yeah. what was the, I guess, the etiology of this? I mean, what, if you know, caused... Paul Paul to um, want to put forth this statement at that time. It looks like 1975. Persona Romana, you mean? Yeah, I'm looking at um, Romani, right? Yeah. So Persona Romana would have been would have been written uh, simply because of the challenges that were going on in the 1960s regarding the sexual revolution, regarding a lot of the uh, breakdown of morality uh, in general. So I think that there were a lot of questions. It came about at the time of the Vatican Council, and in its wake, it probably um, caused Pope Paul VI to want to write this document to try to be able to um, to at least give some sense of what the morality of the Church still is. But many questions arose that were posing serious challenges to the Church's teaching, and I think Persona Humana was written as a way of, of kind of clarifying what the Church's teachings were. Yeah, so I guess the only other thing I'd say is um, it seems awful up-to-date now, too, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Well, the Church's teaching on these things is um, it's unchanging, frankly. This has been the way it's been since the beginning of the Church, so it isn't a, um, a revitalization of anything more than it is just a kind of restatement of what we always have believed. Um, yeah, the Church's moral teaching has not changed in 2000 years, so that's something we can be consistent, if nothing else, right? For sure. Father, um, you know, a lot of people blame for the erosion of, you know, the morals and stuff in, this, in the 60s on, the, on Vatican II. Do you think even if Vatican II didn't happen, it still would, it still would have been that same, you know, thing happened in the 60s and 70s? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, people, the Vatican II would become the boogeyman for every problem in the church today. And it's incredibly unfair. People forget that one of the main bishops who spoke and wrote documents about it was John Paul II, who's there. And one of the main priests who was an advisor to the bishops, at least in Germany, was Ratzinger. So these are not men who were known to be, you know, left-wing guys who were going to try to have the church torn down. Um, The question of, was too much done too quickly? Maybe. Was there a sense of... um, you know, for a lot of people, one of the main challenges was when the liturgy changed. For many Catholics, if liturgy can change, if the Mass can change, then anything can change. There's no sense of there's ecclesiastical law, which can be changed in some cases, and divine law, which can be. So, for example, right now, with the dispensation for Sunday Mass, at least in New York, I think in report the same thing. The obligation of the Sabbath, to observe the Sabbath day, is divine law. That's in the commandments. Going to Mass on Sunday is ecclesiastical law. So a bishop in an extreme circumstance can dispense a person from that. 
if someone is very seriously ill, they are dispensed just in general from being able to go to Mass on Sunday. There are divine laws that can't be changed ever because it comes right from God. And there are then ecclesiastical laws which come from the church which can be changed in extreme circumstances. And we're going to see how some of the moral teachings of the church are in divine law and can't be changed. Other moral teachings have some, some wiggle room. And we're going to kind of see as we go through the course how that's going to look if you kind of have, uh, unfold different issues, medical ethics especially, which is still uh, a lot of issues, medical ethics, where the science has so outpaced the ethics, they'll play catch up on a lot of very um, challenging newer issues that are emerging right now uh, in the world of medicine, in the world of science. But we'll get to that in due time. But yeah, Vatican II is the boogeyman for everyone's problem with the church. I think it was more a response to the culture than it is a cause of the cultural breakdown. Good question, though. Thanks, Sean. All right. Okay. So we're going to pick up talking about the issue of marriage, and we kind of left off last week. And uh, you know, John Paul II said so we base our Catholic teaching on marriage, looking at three things: the Bible, ethics, and personalist reasons. The Bible, ethics, and personalist reasons. When we speak about personalist reasons, what we're talking about very basically is the dignity of the human person. Throughout this course, whether it's, whether it's marriage, whether it's social ethics, whether it's medical ethics, dignity of the person is critical. That because we're made in the image and likeness of God, to preserve the dignity of the person in every circumstance, in every facet of life, is critical. And the same thing here applies um, to marriage. And we speak about marriage at the service of love and of life. So often talked about as the love-life link. Alliteration helps, remember things, you know? The love-life link is what we have in marriage. More formally, we speak about it as the unitive and procreative elements of marriage. Unitive and procreative elements of marriage. Unitive is the oneness, procreative is the fruitfulness that comes. So unitive and procreative. And both these things have their basis in the scriptures. The unitive element in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where the author of Genesis writes, a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and the two become one flesh. The unitive element there of oneness in the marital act of intimacy. The challenge, though, is throughout Israel's history, they had a very poor ability to live out this idea of marriage and faithfulness. It is not a great uh, track record here. You look at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs. All of these men had multiple wives. Polygamy was, was commonplace in those days, and it was kind of what happened, frankly. Now, what's interesting is people will say, well, no, God nowhere in Genesis criticizes polygamy or condemns it as being evil. But if we look at what happens in those families with polygamy, you have jealousy, you have hatred, 
you have the breakdown of families, you have rivalries that develop. So really, it seems to me as if the condemnation of, of polygamy is simply in the fact of what the results were. That when you have these things, it becomes a mess to trying to live out marriage faithfully. You have a complete destruction of that. As well as the fact that throughout the course of the scriptures, in Deuteronomy, you have laws about divorce. A man giving his life a bill of divorce. You have the kings, the monarchs, David, who had many wives. Solomon, who had 700 wives. Wow. That's a lot of wives, man. Imagine that, right? Valentine's Day, rough. <laughs> I think that it was Solomon, though, was not a sex addict, all right? Solomon had 700 wives because in the ancient world, the way you consolidated power, the way you had peace amongst nations and empires, was to intermarry. So Solomon, the God had promised that his kingdom would bring about peace. So rather than letting God do the work and letting God be the one who would help to bring about peace, Solomon has to force God's hand. He has all these wives as a way of showing that through through um, treaties and marriages and weddings, he's going to bring about peace himself with his wives. And of course, the opposite happens. And many of these wives were pagans. And they inspired Solomon to erect pagan altars, to build pagan temples. So God tells Solomon, before he even begins his reign, God says, do three things. Do not multiply your wives, your horses, or your money. So what does Solomon do? He has 700 wives, strike one. He has an army erect, meaning the horses, strike two. And he has silver mines opened up. Strike three. So the three, th- God, the three things, three simple things. Don't do these things, Solomon. It does. He does. Good job. Way to go, Solomon. Oh, wait, a little point here about Solomon and his wives. You know, the queen in the ancient world of the kingdom was not the wife of the king, because you couldn't be. You have 700 wives. Who gets precedence there? So in the ancient world, the queen was the mother of the king, not the wife of the king which is very, very important, because as we see the church as the new kingdom of David and Solomon as a type of Jesus, then Mary, by default, as the mother of the king, is the queen. And because Christ is the king of the universe, Mary then becomes the queen of the universe. So our Catholic marrying teaching has direct reference to understanding the church as the new divinity kingdom. So again, it's what's going on there. So by the time of Jesus, there were two main schools of thought about marriage. The school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. And it's not even that worry about that the title is kind of just as a interesting little point here. The school of Shammai was the more liberal of the two schools. The school of Shammai taught that a man can divorce his wife for something as simple as burning his dinner. That is true. I think that that's actually a real thing. So, kind of a more um, left or liberal understanding there of, uh, of marriage, I mean, as simple as that. The second school, the school of Hillel, was a much more strict school and would limit divorce to more serious offenses against marriage. 
When the Pharisees and the scribes posed the question to our Lord about marriage and divorce, what they're trying to do is see which school Jesus agrees with. Being a good rabbi, the Lord answers the question with a question. And he simply asks them, what did Moses command you? And then he tells them at the beginning, it was not... Was that... Okay. So the Lord says, look, Moses commanded you to have a full divorce, but in the beginning, it was not so. And reiterates the idea of man leaving his parents, cleaving to his wife, and the two becoming one flesh. All, all of this speaks to the unitive elements of marriage, the unitive aspect of marriage. Very, very important. And it's not just bodily, it's emotionally, spiritually. It's a variety of elements that speak to the unitive nature. And the unitive nature of marriage refers to one specific kind of physical unity. All right? When I go to the dentist for a cleaning or for a checkup, and doctor puts his finger in my mouth to check my teeth, that is not a unitive act. Okay? Simply putting part of your body in somebody else's body is not a unitive act. So this is very important because we're going to see how other actions which one might claim is unitive and the church's understanding of it really are not. It's much more than a simple putting one part of the body in somebody else's. It's much more than just that kind of crass understanding of it. The second element here, the procreative element, comes from Genesis 128. When the Lord tells the first, our first parents, you're fruitful and multiply. Bring forth progeny onto the earth. This is repeated again after the flood. Genesis 9-1, Genesis 9-7. God has charged us with continuing the human race. Now, the procreative element of marriage is fulfilled even if a person is is older or is infertile and can't have children. Someone is sterile but is not an impediment to getting married because the marital act is still ordered to the possibility of procreation. So the unitive and procreative elements of marriage are what makes it a fully human act of marital love in those moments. And our love is called to mirror, marital love called to mirror the image of the love God has for his people is an act given freely and God invites us to share in his creative work. You know, God can snap his divine fingers and create new life. But instead, he invites humanity to take part in his, in his creative aspect. Now, animals reproduce. Humans procreate. It's a very important distinction there. Now, on a very basic level, it's, it is the same thing. Well, in a physical sense, yeah, it's the same thing. But on a much deeper level, a much more important level, it really is a distinction there. Because the reality is humans take part in the creative element of God. Reproduction, I mean, a factory produces, you know, a, an inanimate object. But humans, humans share in the creative act of God. The reality is every child conceived is destined for eternal life 
in heaven with God forever. And that is the first obligation of parents is to get their child to heaven. Your spouse first, your children second. Now for some spouses, it's a real hard task. For some parents, it's a real hard task. But the reality is that is what God charges us with. But even if our children or our spouse are not doing the right things, our prayer life can really help. You know, St. Paul has a great line. St. Paul says the, the prayers of the believing wife will save her unbelieving husband. So even in those days, the women had more, more um, strength in their prayer than the guys. God hears those prayers. And God, parents especially, God hears the parents' prayers for children. From personal experience, I can tell you this is accurate. In 2011, when I was in my first parish, one of our parishioners worked for Sodexo Marriott. And Sodexo Marriott was catering to the Super Bowl that year. I'm a Giants fan. That was the second Giants Patriots Super Bowl. So Mary, the woman's name, says to your father, you know, we have a luxury box in Indianapolis given to the company for the game. Would you want to be given a ticket to the luxury box to watch the game? So Mary, don't tease me. It's like, oh, it's not fun. You know, talk really seriously. No, I'm serious. We actually have this, we have this thing. So I said, well, what, what are the odds of my being able to go to this game? He went, about 80%. And I'm like, all right. So I check flights from New York to Indianapolis. Now normally a flight to Indianapolis, it's like 140 bucks, pretty cheap. That weekend, $1,500 was the flight from New York to Indianapolis. So I'm like, all right, let's talk about it. I have a friend in, in Chicago. Say, Mike, I go to Chicago, your house, stay overnight, rent the car, and go to the game the next day. Drive to Indianapolis for the game, drive back at night after the game's over, fly home. He goes, no problem, stay at my house, no big deal. My mom heard about this. My mom, my mom did. And mom was nervous about me driving after the game back in the dark to Chicago, three hours from Indianapolis. And mom prayed that I wouldn't be able to go to the game. And the last person before me got the ticket and luxury box. So mom's prayers, parents, their parents' prayers, they're not messing around. They, like, I hear their prayers. Well, they hear the priest's son's prayers. So. There you go. But kind of a fine little thing, but it's kind of how God works in mysterious ways. But it is the job of parents to get them to heaven. And a much more serious note, um, about eight, nine years ago, I called to the hospital in Westchester. One of my friends, his uh, his his sister-in-law had a baby before pregnant with Chorley and was not looking good. So I went to the hospital and I baptized the baby um, in the incubator, a little eye drop. And, you know, did that way. And um, it was really a powerful moment for me. And the child didn't, unfortunately, die. And at the funeral mass, about three or four days later, I commented to the parents. I said, your, your job is to get your child to heaven. And you did that. You know, for a short time, as this kid was alive and, and blessed your life with, with his presence, you made sure to do what was necessary his salvation and God surely sees that and uh, will reward you for your faithfulness even in the midst of all of this pain you're feeling right now so those moments it really kind of strikes you how God um, calls parents and calls to be the, 
the one to help to inspire the faith in the heart of their child. And really, a lot of it goes back as well to St. Paul. In Ephesians 5, Paul talks about the wife as a symbol of the church and the husband as a symbol of Christ. And he says to the couple, listen, as, as Christ loved the church and died for her, so the man is called to love his wife, even to the point of self-sacrificial love, losing his life for his wife. And the wife's love should be that same kind of complete, total devoted love for her husband. So we're called to share in that creative, beautiful love that God has for all of us, whether it's marriage in the physical sense, as you may you have, or myself as a priest, in a supernatural, spiritual sense, called to exercise our fatherhood you know, we forget, gents, that a father in a natural home is a priest of his family. It is totally appropriate for a father to bless his children because the father is the priest of his individual household. Calling a priest father is not simply a nice title like doctor or counselor for an attorney or whatever the case may be. It is a relational term. Because in a beautiful sense, any priest who is a Catholic priest in the sense of my own vocation is a father to his people in the parish, whether they're you know, three years old or 85 years old. All of them become his spiritual children through his fatherhood of that parish. And it's a beautiful reality for we as priests to remember in serving God's people. Right. Now, we also have, in Romani Vitae, Pope Paul VI outlines four elements of marriage. First element that Paul VI outlines is that married love is total. The whole person is involved. It is spiritual and physical. The whole person is involved in marriage. We forget sometimes that we are body and soul composites. You are as much the soul of your body as you are the body of your soul. They are interweaved, interwoven, which is why physical actions have spiritual consequences. If we were separated in the physical and spiritual sense, then my physical actions would in no way impact my spiritual life. But it is because we are body and soul, united in that composite reality, that we have physical, con um, physical consequences for physical actions. It's a very important reality. You can forget about that, but it's true when we uh, look at it that way. Under this total understanding, marriage is a unique form of friendship. That's what marriage really is. It's beautiful in a sense. Talking to couples about this is important. You know, it's trite when a couple says, this is my best friend, being their, their, their fiancé or their spouse. But it's true. And that's how it should be, frankly. And the reality is, under friendship, to understand the way that the church and the ancients understood friendship. There are three different types of friendship that Aristotle talks about and Thomas Aquinas picks up on. Two of them really are not real friendships. 
a third one truly is. The first type of friendship is a friendship based purely on utility. What can I get out of this? That's what we ask ourselves in that kind of a situation. But once I start benefiting from a relationship with this person, the friendship ends. Simply based on utility. A lot of people today operate under this rubric of friendship. And it's very, very uh, damaging because it's not real friendship. The second type of friendship is one based on personal pleasure, purely an enjoyment of being with this person. Purely enjoyment. When it becomes boring or common, the friendship ends. The personal pleasure. I think a lot of couples in Hollywood operate on this second type of friendship when they get married. Which is why they get married and like in about you know a year or two they get divorced over whatever reason they give. No relationship is going to be personally pleasurable forever. Right? A good metric of friendship is are you willing to drive your friend to the airport or do something really annoying for that friend? You get them, you know, in the morning, bring them to the airport or to go to the hospital if they're sick, make a phone call, to go through a hard time. If you're willing to go outside of yourself, that shows your friendship is much more than simply personal pleasure or utility. It's important for us to be aware of that because we live in a world the first two elements here, I think, dominate the spectrum of what people define as friendship. But the second, or the, or the third form of friendship, the one that is true friendship, is called benevolence. Simply a friendship where you wish the good of the other person. Benevolence is wishing the good of the other person, putting their hopes, their dreams, their desires before yourself and making yourself second to the person with whom you are a friend. And that kind of friendship is going to endure. That kind of marriage rooted in benevolence is also going to endure because the couple is putting the other person before themselves. And that is a beautiful thing when a couple shows them that way. You know, it's a remarkable thing to see in older couples especially. But one of them maybe has Alzheimer's or dementia. And to watch the way in which a person will tend to their ill spouse when they maybe themselves have medical problems or some kind of a sickness, how they are totally concerned about the good of the spouse whom they love who is suffering in some way. And to watch that, boy, it's amazing. We had a couple of, now I was in the parish where a guy was, a uh, wife was handicapped and he wheeled her every single week the mass was attentive to her was just to, to watch the way in which they interacted with magnificent when, when she died he was he was crushed and he went to the cemetery every day to visit her grave and lasted about a year and then himself passed away because his heart was so given over to his bride that he couldn't imagine life without her that's remarkable and it's a friendship rooted Benevolence because when he was dating her, when she had this, this diabetic issue and, and lost her legs, they were dating. And his friends thought he was going to leave her because of this. And you know, married for 60 years, 
three, four kids, a lot of grandchildren. His love for her wasn't utility, wasn't personal pleasure. It was a love based in his willing her good. And that is a beautiful thing to see when you see it. Boy, it is remarkable to visit because in our world today, Lord knows we don't have many of those examples. Second element of marriage is that marriage is free. It's an act of freedom on the part of the couples to enter into this marriage. One heart, one soul, together. And we ask them, part of the marriage right and the promises of consent, are you freely coming here to choose to marry this person? It's a, few, it's a pure gift of yourself for the other. When I do marriages, one of the comments I make to my couples is the greatest gift, John Paul II says this, the greatest gift any of us can give is the gift of ourself, giving ourselves to the other and an act of freedom to do so. You know, please God, fellas, in a year and a half from now, you're ordained deacons, you will lay prostrate on the cathedral floor as a sign of your freely submitting yourself to service of the church. And what makes it beautiful is that your choice of this service, your choice of entering into diaconal ministry is not a coercive thing. No one's forcing you to do this. Mm. You're choosing to respond freely to what the Lord has drawn you to do. And that is a magnificent reality. I say to the guys I'm working with for priesthood in vocation ministry, look, fellas, your, your question is not so much, do I want to be a priest? It's important. Not the main question. The main question is, is God calling me to be a priest? It's a very different question. Because the first one is looking interiorly. What do I want? The second one is saying, what does God want? And it's very important. Because the first question could be selfish in how we answer it. But the second question, what does God want, is orienting our heart and our mind in the right direction. I think for deacons, your formation as well, it's an important question to ask yourselves as you continue through your formation. Third uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, the olden days, there were a lot of arranged marriages. Mm -hmm. In the olden days, there yeah. were a lot of arranged marriages. Mm -hmm. so they actually didn't enter free will. The parents arranged it and pressured them. Yeah, in a certain sense, Peter, because they're not entering into it freely. They're being forced. Now, again, culturally, it was a different time. So we have to take into consideration what the mores were of the time period in which those things were happening. And in time, the couple might come to love one another, they have a family together. So you don't want to disparage the reality of that. But it really, that's a really serious issue. And, you know, it would not be uncommon today even if someone comes to you well, let's say that the woman is pregnant and they were dating and they go to get married. And you think, well, wait a minute. Is this for because you're pregnant or because you want to get married? Like what's, what's, what's the reality here? Because it's very important that there is a freedom in making that decision. Now, again, in the arranged marriage world, it's very difficult. Now, and in some cultures, that still exists today. 
when I was in college, one of my you know peers was um, was Muslim, and her father would choose the husband for her. And a little little wrinkle in all of this, but in newer, more modern times, is she could veto her dad's decision. But at the end of the day, it was dad who chose the husband for her. And I remember we were, we were not close in terms of being friends or anything, but I remember her saying that her boyfriend at college was not the person her dad chose for her. The man she loved in college was not the man her dad chose for her. And I don't know what happened. I, she graduated and that was the end of it. But I imagine it must have caused a great strife in that family because the man she wanted to marry was not her dad's choice. So in some cultures, it is still very much an element of, uh, of choosing the spouse for um, for the young woman, especially in that kind of a sense, the arranged marriage concept there, definitely. But it was how it was. And again, we don't want to impose 21st century values on you know third or fourth century, even you know even before that um, civilizations, which is different. But it was not the ideal of what marriage should be. And under under today's circumstances, we would say that kind of marriage. Would not be valid. Father. Well, what, what do we do? Hey, Matt. Because we know it's an Down here. today, or like you said, she's pregnant and the father's forcing her to marry somebody. Yeah, well, and that can have the case. Are if, you eating? If, if one of the parents is forcing is them to marry because uh, of their pregnancy, what? Yeah. I think it's important to challenge the couple yeah. first talk about Maybe this. let the but dog out or parents, keep an eye on her. Invite them in also this one. conversation because this is a really serious yeah. issue. No. I mean, if they're getting married under duress... Uh, not that you need to let her out now, but... Because they're not choosing to enter into this, but they're, with their entirety of their heart engaged in this reality. Instead, it's a response to external circumstance, a pregnancy or an arranged marriage on the part of one of the parents. You might wouldn't come across an arranged marriage so much these days, but you could come across the issue of pregnancy. That's very possible. And what you could say, you, you can't deny a sacrament but you can delay a sacrament. There's an important distinction there. So if the girl's pregnant and they're rushing into marriage, you could say, listen, let's give this some time. Let's not rush into this relationship or into this marriage. And very often they'll remain together, they'll get married, and then they'll be, you know, they'll be fine. But the last thing you want to do is rush into a situation of that nature. So you can delay, can delay. Baptism is the same way. Ordination is the same way. There are times when the guy is in seminary and needs another year, pastoral year or a spiritual year. It isn't a no. It's a not yet. Take some more time. Think of this out and come back and talk about who you are now. There's no reason to rush into something, especially something as serious and forever as marriage or holy order is. Right, so my question is... Yes, Father. Uh, this weekend, uh, I was talking to a priest. Uh, he's from India, and he was really saying that these arranged marriages in India uh, last a lot longer than the so-called love marriages that we are used to seeing over here. Yeah. So just because it was arranged by the families doesn't necessarily mean that the, the couple is entering unwillingly. Oh, sure. Well, that's an important distinction also, because you're right. If it is arranged, 
It could be where the couple knows one another for the last you know, 15 years of their life, grew up together. A lot of these arranged marriages happen when they're children because the families know one another. And there's a possibility of a friendship being there long before. Rosie is. So again, you don't want to paint everyone with the same brush. You're right. But the reality is that probably is a cultural element um, to that as well. But there is a challenge of a sentimentality with marriages today, which is really an issue. I heard a story recently that was like really something that was interesting. One of my friends was saying that priest that we knew was just passed away, a young man, sadly. But he had a, um, a wedding. His wedding prep was the woman was going to have a horse-drawn carriage, bringing her from the church to the, the home of the parents after the wedding. And she was obsessed with this horse, bringing them back and forth to the, to the church. The horse, the horse, the horse. All right. So the wedding day happens. The carriage brings them to the church. The wedding takes place. They walk out of the church. The horse has dropped dead on the sidewalk. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> like, well, that's like God, huh? But, you know, in those circumstances, what, what's the, what's kind of the point? The point there is that she was so obsessed, and she said that she realized how stupid this was to be thinking about a horse being obsessed with that. But a lot of couples today, gents, entering into marriage with the reception and the pictures and the flowers and the photography and the videography, again, the social media, it's all a game now of can you top this? Right? So people spend exorbitant amounts of money on weddings today. It would be that people for a house. Right, we're, we're, we're investing in the house. Yeah. <laughs> So the loss of a sense of sacrament, the, the, yeah, sacrament, the beauty of this moment. But perhaps Lucas in India, most it was probably poor areas. There's a real sense of family. There's a sense of devotion. There's a sense of love, and probably the parents of those kids themselves come from arranged marriages, and they've seen the love that can exist between a husband and wife in an arranged marriage in those cultures. But again, you know, in the West, we kind of would be a little bit, you know. Um, hesitant to endorse that kind of a thing. But, well, we, yeah. we have to remember that a lot of those uh, families moved to, to the United States and they still follow those cultures. Yeah, which is fine. They don't, they don't change. Listen, I mean, as long as it's not going to be an issue for the family itself in, those, in that circumstance, it really is not a major issue that I would see with it. But again, to Peter's point before, though, you have to be careful of what's causing the person to enter into the marriage. Is it, a, is it under duress, or is there a freedom that is associated with it? Even a freedom that could come from them choosing to enter into an arranged marriage. There has to be some element of freedom there on the part of the couple in some way, because otherwise it is not, it's not a, a willful entering into the sacrament. Instead, it's more like being forced into it. And that would cause the biggest issue there, whether it was arranged or not. Um, but yeah, the, there is a cultural element, and the reality is we are experiencing... Uh, more of that than ever before. You're going to see that in your ministry tremendous increase in the number of mixed marriages, both non-baptized, non-Catholic, non, non, uh, non because more and more, as we, as our influences and our spheres of influence kind of extend out, we're going to be seeing more and more of those kinds of mixed marriage situations. And it's important for us to be sensitive to the cultural differences that exist in those circumstances. Because there are things that are... Um, Definitely unique 
the marriage right itself as well as to the marriage preparation and life even after marriage. So good for us to have a good cross-section of those that are in ministry to be sensitive to their own cultural issues and help those that are emerging from different um, traditions than we're used to in our own world. You know, in New York every Sunday, Mass is celebrated in 36 different languages. Give you a sense of the kind of cross-section of, of culture that exists. That's a great thing. It's a good thing, for sure. And it's important for us to be sensitive to those different cultures that we come in contact with in our ministry. Because you're going to come in contact with other different cultures. And being sensitive to those things is going to be really important. So good, um, good points. Well, Peter and Lucas, thank you for coming in there. The third element of marriage is that it is faithful. Exclusive unto death. Traditional signs of marriage are permanence and fidelity. Permanence and fidelity. The idea of marriage is faithful comes down to the issue of trust. There has to be trust in a marriage where things fall apart very quickly. Oftentimes, when a couple comes to us because of a, a challenge in a marital situation, it's often a direct result of a loss of trust in the marriage in some way. I had a couple come to me a number of years ago where her family was kind of not the most honest of families. And they did some shady dealings, got in a bit of hardship financially, and she gave them money on the slide, and her husband caught her and challenged her on it, and she promised him that she wouldn't do it again. And she did. And he caught her again. At this point, he's saying, how can I trust you? How can I trust you? You promised me that you wouldn't do this again. You have. And this is money we need for our family. You're giving away your own family? Come on, this is crazy. And it really, I mean, it brought them to the brink of divorce, frankly. Thank God they managed to overcome that and, and they're fine now. But you're going to come across issues like that. Now, of course, nowhere is trust more shattered than when it's unfaithfulness in a marriage. Because the damage done in that kind of circumstance is enormous. Because how can, how can a spouse trust somebody if, they're, if they've broken that most sacred of elements of their marriage? It's a real serious problem. So the faithfulness element to it is, is critical and permanence and fidelity are, are hallmarks in our love. The last element, the fourth element, is that marriage is fruitful. It's caused to bring about new life. You know, most love, we say, terminates in the object that's loved. So, for example, I love or I want a new car, for argument's sake. I love this car. I want to get it. I'm excited about it. Go out, buy it, have it, and that's where it ends. In married love, though, we love somebody, we cherish them, we embrace them, we marry them, they now we in a covenant relationship, but the love doesn't terminate or doesn't end there. Because the love of marriage is creative. It's not just between mom and dad or two spouses, husband and wife. It's a creative love that is meant, that is ordered to bring about 
new life, to bring about a new existence into the world. A soul that is destined forever to be with God in heaven. By the way, just a bit of an aside here. When a child is conceived, God puts the soul in immediately. It's created by God immediately. There are not a number of finite souls waiting to get put into a body upon conception. God creates the soul immediately when the child is conceived. And the very first second of conception, that child, that zygote, has a soul. It is in soul, and therefore it is a person. So it's very important for us to realize that the church's teaching about abortion is not simply based upon some full-time understanding of things. Scientifically speaking, you know, that zygote is there, that conception happens, that now is ordered. Because it, you know, it isn't like we go through, you know, you're not, you're not a rock first and become a person, become a human. You're a human at the first moment of conception. to be growing along the path there. More an issue of chronology than anything else. So it's important, we'll get that later on, talk about abortion and the ethic, but important to have a sense of that. Total, free, faithful, fruitful. The reality is all four of these are distinctions of how God's love is for us. God's love is total, free, faithful, and fruitful. God's love is total for us, unconditional. Nothing could ever separate us from God's love. Total, complete. It's free. You can't earn God's love. People get all bent out of shape trying to earn the love of God. Forget it. He loves you anyway. Stop trying to earn it. Our acting morally, our acting virtuously, is not my attempt to have God love me. Acting virtuously is a response to the love of God for me. But God loves whether we were, whether we were a sinner, whether we were a saint. In Matthew, right? Tax collector, real serious sinner, Christ's love for him permeated his heart to conversion. The whole freak is faithful. God never abandons us despite our stupidity, despite our sins, despite our frailty and faults. God's love never abandons us. And it's fruitful. That when I respond to God's love, and others see that in me, conversion happens that way. In our culture today, fellas, you are the only scripture, only gospel, a lot of people are going to see. So how we live is going to determine a lot about other people come to faith when they see how we live our lives as a member of the clergy, even more so. It's a really serious obligation because how we live impacts more people than just ourselves. Really, really critical. Okay. Are there any questions in any of that before we move on to the next thing? Well, when, when you say God's love is fruitful, you mean that he created us. So, like, if, if people can't have children, then there's no bearing on it. Well, in the sense of, but yeah, but parents who can't conceive because they can't have, because there's a sterility issue or whatever, will exercise their parenthood to a niece or a nephew, to people maybe that they come across in their life who are, you know, younger, we look up to them as, as, as role models. Um... One of my friends, uh, his his dad was completely an absentee his whole life. And his father figure 
was a deacon in his parish. Kind of, they under his wing and embraced him as, as, as a son. So in that kind of a sense, our fatherhood, those of us that are not parents, naturally speaking, whether we are priests or we're not just parents, whatever issue, the fatherhood we have, the fruitfulness we have, is exercised in a different way. As godparents, as uncles, as examples, as members of the clergy, there's many ways for us to exercise our fatherhood other than a biological reality being a parent. Good question, Peter. Definitely. Okay. All right. So, from the happiness of marriage love to the aberrations of marriage, the things that are off kilter when it comes to marriage. Look first here at the pastoral issues that we're going to face in these hot button, challenging realities of marriage in today's day and age. The first is looking at the issue of divorce. So the good news, according to Office of Bible Records, is that divorce has dropped about 17% in the last year. That's a good thing, for sure. Wait, is that 70% of marriages or, or just total because marriages are down? Well, that's, we'll get to that in a minute, but 70% of that, there's 17% less divorces than there were last year. And there's like 30% less marriages. So. Yeah, well, well, I mean, right. But that's, I'm trying to give good news. Good news for us, Peter. Come on, man. I'm give you some good news here before you get into the hard stuff. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> so, you're right. And the so reality is, is yeah. what's the percentage going to be after COVID? Well, that's, yeah. Just kidding. No, no, you're, you're, you're probably accurate. probably accurate. Actually, you are accurate because we're receiving the happening. You know, divorce lawyers are, are licking their chops at this, unfortunately. As we've seen, first of all, tragically, the rates of domestic abuse phone calls police officers get has shot through the roof, which is terrible and tragic you know, and awful. And the divorce rate, I'm sure, you've already seen this happen, actually, is um, going up as well. And you know, part of that challenge is, you know, how many couples work two jobs, or have work one job each, I'll say, and their marriage is like passing strangers in the house, because they're busy working, when the kids come along, it's a real issue of like balancing the kids and marriage and that kind of thing. It's interesting because you oftentimes will see divorce even happen amongst older couples, and you think, what's going on there? Oh, it's not working. They're living together 24-7. It's like cabin yeah. fever. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, with older couples, a lot of times, we, not, I mean, most times, I think, when the kids come along, your life revolves around the children. And it should. That's part of the reality how we're supposed to be as good parents. So that's what happens. But if there's not time to make for the couple themselves, a problem enters in. Once the kids leave the house, walk to college, begin their own life, the person you're living with now, two of you in the house together, is like, who are you again? What's your first name? Right? But it's like a stranger almost. And it becomes a real serious issue in some of those families. So I encourage couples that I'm doing that I'm dealing with in, in marriage prep, rapidal preparation, that when the kids come along, try as often as you can, once a month at the absolute least, get date night. Where it's you and your spouse. That has to be, that first community has to be nurtured first. And the grandparents love the grandchildren. 
So give Mother Grandma and Grandpa for the weekend. They'll love to have them. There you go, grandparents. Take them. And you can be with your, with your spouse, enjoying that love of being with them. As very <laughs> funny thing once. They asked a young, young child, you know, why is it that grandchildren and grandparents get along so well? And the kids, honest answer was, oh, it's easy. Common, en- common enemy. I don't know. But, I mean, in some sense, I guess that kind of is um, part of the reality of grandparents and grandchildren. I don't have them, so I don't know. But... That's, no, that's easy, because grandchildren spoil them.
because of that, it is the nature of the sacrament indissoluble. So, for example, if two Presbyterians get married, we view that as a sacrament. If they're married and get divorced, they want to marry a Catholic who's free to marry, the Protestant person has to go through an annulment, which is a hard sell, let me tell you. But it is part of our teaching. Because you view every baptized marriage as a sacrament. So really, in a certain sense, it comes from our respect of the other Protestant marriage that they have to get married, that they get an annulment to marry the Catholic who is free to marry. It's a hard thing to tell people that people don't always see that, but it's a reality. Now, if a Catholic marries another Catholic or a Protestant without Catholic form, so it means they get married on a beach somewhere, or they get married in their best friend's backyard, but they're afraid of that degree from, from your, uh, online you know, ordination marries to them. That is not a valid marriage in our view, nor is it indissoluble. You guys stop. Lily, stop. If that marriage were to end in a divorce, and the Catholic wants to marry another Catholic who is free to marry, let's say, they don't need to get an annulment. They only need to get what is called a decree of nullity, which declares the marriage null and void. It is very important to remember also, gents, that divorce itself is not a sin. People think that it is, and it is not. It is tragic when a divorced person who is not remarried stays in the Eucharist for years. They were catechized poorly and were taught that divorce is a mortal sin. Jesus condemns it, therefore you yourself can go to communion. What a tragedy for that person. It's an awful thing when that happens. Very often, Catholics are married today, not in Catholic form, because they want to do their own thing. So we want to get them to make that move into getting married in the church, in Catholic form, under the auspices of a sacrament. So important for us, because the reality of marriage, challenging as it is, the sacramental graces of marriage are, are essential for those people. Now, when it comes to two Catholics, let's say, for example, visit divorce and remarriage, they'll come to us usually when the marriage, second marriage, has already happened. But occasionally, they come to you when they're actually dating or thinking about getting married in the church and need to get the annulment. Now, this is a painful process because the annulment has to have your account all the events surrounding why the first marriage ended, which is why it is much better to get the annulment after it happens. Memories are fresh in your mind. You don't have to revisit it later on. And also important, the witnesses are still around. You have to produce four or five witnesses who can, who can back up your story of why the marriage ended. I've had annulments denied because of a lack of witnesses. Everything else worked. That issue was missing. The annulment was not granted. Real serious issue with that.
So witnesses are important. Now, the couple does not have to ever talk to, see, or deal with the ex-spouse. All this is done, the church is, you know, uh, intermediation, not necessary. What we have to do, though, is get the address of the former spouse. Because if we notify, this is happening. If you get a real belligerent spouse, ex-spouse, they can hold up the process of an annulment. It just happened. It had to happen to me, actually, given people that I've worked with. Some spouses are just as a bad breakup, a really tough situation. They want to, at a spite more than anything else, uh, hurt the former spouse. Peter? Yeah. What happens if the husband just disappears? Yeah. The wife? Yeah. To have an address. Right. There has to be some. There has to be some attempt at it. But if if there's no ability to contact the former spouse after after a reasonable investigation and reasonable attempts at this, um, I think there's a way in which we can can move forward in those situations. It's rare because oftentimes there may be mutual friends, uh, social media. Keeps things kind of connected in some some small way, so there is a way of doing this today. But if it were to happen after a, a um, strong investigation and finding another spouse, even if they could find them, I think they can still pursue them the annulment um, after the investigation goes forward. Okay, so let's say you have an address and, and the church notifies them. Mm-hmm. Does the ex-spouse have to respond? Yeah, I mean, I've never had a, I've never received any of these things in the mail, obviously, but I think the ex-spouse is just notified. Maybe they have to respond, you know, yes, I will not hold up this process, or no, I don't agree with this, I want to, you want to, you know, uh, hold this up. So they have, they, have, they have an opportunity to do that, and sometimes they do. Yeah. Some don't respond at all, what happens? Well, not that kind of the case, there'd be probably a second or third letter, maybe a phone call made, there'd be some way of, back, of, of getting in contact with the person to try and get their, their um, assurance that they, in fact, have been notified that this is happening. But again, I never actually had the issue of a spouse not responding to um, the other spouse's attempt at the annulment. So I don't know the exact way in which that will be handled in that kind of a case. Yeah. Okay. Or yeah. Yeah. All these things that you know, it's because uh, what, what happens, guys, is once the annulment goes through in terms of the paperwork being done, the tribunal downtown handles all that stuff. Maybe the one making the phone calls. Maybe the ones handling a lot of that, a lot of that secondary stuff. My my role really is to help them get paperwork in and find a way of being able to get this thing move forward. What so are remember, the criteria for an annulment? Say again, John. What are the criteria for an, an annulment? It depends. Depends upon the situation. Most annulments today are granted what is called contra bonum prolis, which means against the good of children. That is the most common one. That simply means that the spouse had lied to the other spouse about wanting to have children. Um, I had a case. I think I'm married. I don't want to have children. And she begged him. And they had one child. When she got pregnant again, as she was literally literally pregnant, the husband walks out on her. Because I didn't want to have children. I told you this. We had one. I don't want any more. And he walked out. So that shows us this man had no intention of having children. 
even though he has one already, the one on the way, his his deep uh, animus to having a family, and that annulment was in fact granted. That's one of the mo- most common ones, John, you see today. Most of the annulments are mm-hmm. granted on the, on, the, on the basis of one of the spouses not wanting to have children. And they will lie to the priest, they will lie to the deacon to be able to move forward um, with the marriage. It's very sad. What and about physical abuse? It would depend upon whether or not that was present before the marriage uh, was contracted as well. Remember, the annulment simply says, at the time the vows were exchanged, there was something which prevented the vows from being exchanged um, with complete fidelity, honesty, and nothing was being held back. If the abuse manifested itself after after the wedding, you had a problem because mm-hmm. after the marriage. Then they were children. Like if you if you got married and you both wanted children, and then after the marriage one changes their mind. You don't get the annulment. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, that's true also. But you try to work with that and, and, and see if there was some indication before the marriage of whether or not there was any sense there was any sense here of not wanting to have children. But um, in, in New York, at least, sixty percent of all of our annulment cases are granted in the affirmative, meaning the annulment's granted. But the majority that are not granted. Are usually applications for a second annulment. Those are the ones that are usually not granted. So most times, not always, but most times, on a first attempt at an annulment, if the grounds are significant enough, the tribunal will grant the annulment. However, never, ever, ever tell a couple you think it's going to work for them, or you think that it'll be possible, or even worse, to schedule a date for the wedding in the future. We don't ever do that. Because the reality is we just don't know. We just don't know what's going to happen. And to give them false hope is the worst thing to do. You know, again, I've had both things happen. I've had cases where the annulment went through, and the couple is, is it's great and it's wonderful. When it doesn't go through, it's a lot harder. Because then the people who leave the church, they may be a, a hate to the church. It's a, it's a whole complicated, it's a, it's a mess, really. But um, the main one today we see is against the bit of children. Even infidelity, infidelity after marriage doesn't necessarily mean that the marriage itself is invalid. Now, if there was a sign of infidelity before the wedding, hmm, then it becomes more of an issue. If it's a case where, let's say, one of the couples they get married, ever the case where couple got married civilly first, he was in the military, he was being deployed, they were engaged, they got married civilly first to have the benefits, got being died, pension, that kind of thing. So when he came back from from uh, service, though, back from his tour of duty, she wanted to get married in the church. He kind of didn't care, was indifferent to it no real sense of this, did it simply because she wanted to do it. But he had no interest in the church or the wedding being done in church at all. No faith life. That marriage was, in fact, annulled on a variety of other factors as well. That played a role in it because clearly he has no intention of getting married having it as a sacrament. He treated that way. So that's part of it. Um, but it has How to be... How about 
How about alcoholism and drug use? Does it have to be before the marriage? Yeah. And, yeah. Okay. Yeah, if, if it emerges, it's a good question. If it emerges after the wedding, you know, after the marriage, but again, you know, if, if we can prove in some way that there was a concern here before the wedding, there was, you know, a, a question here, and the person promised sobriety, promised maybe better about this. And then at the reception, this actually happens, sorry, at the reception, gets drunk. That's a bad sign. Which means that how, how real, yeah, I guess obviously a bad sign. I mean, how real was that promise of sobriety? If at the reception, you're, you're you know, getting drunk here. Um, I heard a case once where a couple gets married on the flight, the honeymoon, on the flight, going to Hawaii, so I went to the long flight, and they realized they made a horrible mistake. They land in Hawaii, get on the plane, fly home, and like, yeah, we messed up. This is terrible. This is bad. This is bad. This is a big mistake. Now, obviously, how true could your vows have been if on the way to the, way to the honeymoon, <laughs> breaking up here? Not a good sign. Um, another case where, it's another true story, uh, where a guy totally is married, and they're at the, they're at the honeymoon, or they're at the wedding night, whatever it was, and the guy puts on his wife's wedding dress, and comes out dressed in her dress. And she's like, what the hell are you doing? And apparently he was a cross-dresser of some sort. She didn't know that. Now she does, and it's like, uh, yeah, we have a problem here. And because of the, again, because of the closeness of the time period here, that marriage was in fact annulled as well. Um, can lawyers see all kinds of these crazy situations when it comes to marriage? And so they, they're very strong about making sure the couple you're marrying are, um, are serious. Again, when I was in, in St. Columba as a parish priest for four years, uh, Bishop Colachico was my pastor for two of those years, and he became a lawyer. And his his job in the tribunal, he was working down as a judge, was to hold the defender of the bond. And the defender of the bond, it what it sounds like, your job is in that particular role is to defend why this marriage is in fact valid. So there is a real serious thing here because every marriage is presumed valid unless proved otherwise by a church tribunal. So it's really important that we never assume that a marriage is invalid or that a marriage is not accurate, whatever. No, no. We have to always assume the marriage is valid unless a tribunal proves that to be the case otherwise. Very important. If everything, yeah, Peter, has. I was going to say, like you said, getting divorced is not a sin. Right. But now, if they don't get an annulment and they remarry, that is a sin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a sin that you know, the common life they're going to share it is a sin. You know, I had a case once, a couple came to me, where they got divorced, they were divorced, remarried, they're married now, a second marriage, and something happened, I forget what the exact uh, thing was, where they were unable to have marital relations. And then look, you guys are living in brother and sister, there is no issue here, so... Go to, go to communion, don't worry about receiving the sacraments because you can. Because the issue really is that when it comes to the communion issue, which of course is one of these big hot-button things in the church today, right? The reason why the church does not 
allow the divorced married marry to go to communion is not a punishment, is not punitive, it's not like, we're, well, his his could you, no, no, no. What it is, is for the good of their soul. Why do I say that? In Mark chapter 10, in Matthew 19, Jesus is clear that to get married again to somebody not your, your, your spouse is an act of adultery, which is a mortal sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 to 32, St. Paul says, to receive the Eucharist in a state of mortal sin is to eat and drink condemnation upon yourself. So what we're doing here is saying we don't want you to be committing a sacrilege on top of this already difficult marital situation. We forget the real serious nature of receiving communion in mortal sin. It's a, real, it's a really serious thing, fellas. And John Chrysostom, the fourth century bishop of the church, doctor of the church, had a very strong line about this. John Chrysostom said, to receive communion is like kissing Christ. To receive it in mortal sin is to kiss Christ as Judas kissed him. Mm-hmm. That's powerful, and it's troubling, and it's dead serious, and it's right. So, it's important for us to realize the nature of receiving communion worthily when we come to Mass on Sundays or any day we receive communion worthily. And the problem is that a couple really can't go to confession either. Because part of confession is a firm purpose of amendment. Well, if I share a home with this person and a bed with this person, is it really going to be logical to say to the priest, I promise, Father, to do all that I can, not engage in marital relations? No, it's not. So maybe some couples could, I don't know, but the reality is most couples, for sure, are going to say it's not possible, it's not realistic. And usually it's not, frankly. So that becomes an issue. Now, some couples worry about the issue of annulment and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. If the marriage is annulled, Meaning it never happened. Are my children then illegitimate from the first marriage? And the church is saying you were already married, but I had kids in that first marriage. Are they illegitimate? The answer, of course, is no. No child is ever illegitimate in the eyes of God. Illegitimacy is more to do with civil law and issues of that nature. No child is ever illegitimate in the eyes of God. So it's very important for us to be aware of of that reality. And it is important, yeah. Uh, going back to, to couples that are living together as brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. uh, what, what if we know for a fact that one of them has uh, physical problems where they cannot uh, have sex, mm-hmm. and but they're not married by the church because of previous marriages? Mm-hmm. Uh, can those persons still receive communion? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because the issue is not the remarriage. The issue is the common marital life that happens in a marriage. So that is the major issue. But if an older couple, let's say, gets remarried even civilly because they just want to have companionship and to have that, that sense of being with somebody, but there's no physical relationship there, that's fine. 
magnesium for our standpoint. The important thing there, though, the only thing to be kind of sensitive to is the issue of scandal. They might know this situation. They might say, wait a minute, this couple got married church, they're going to communion. Then it gets kind of thorny. Especially if it's, it's, very, it's a very sensitive thing, obviously. So you don't want to be telling people, well, blah, blah, blah. it's not a problem because he can't do whatever. It's like, that's kind of a rock and a thing to do. So uh, to avoid scandal, you may encourage them. If it's, if it's a known couple, it's not, not a problem. If it could cause scandal, the encouragement could be, you know, go to the parish down the road from us here or somewhere else to avoid there being an issue of scandal. But um, I would imagine in most cases that would not be a problem. But uh, it could be an issue in certain circumstances. We want to be careful and sensitive to that. Yeah. Can you see the problem, though, we're trying to get these folks to reconcile with the church because they're committing adultery. They're not going to mass, mortal sin. They're probably using... Uh, uh, contraceptives you know it's like there's these compounded why when protestant churches are opening the doors for them you know can you see the issues with these folks reconciling with the church now sure right no i mean like john that's a real serious issue and uh, it's one where we have lost people to protestant churches because of that you know it's not but the fact of the matter is for us to um to change our teaching well, for us to water down what the truth, what the truth is, will be a betrayal of, of the gospel and a betrayal of, you know, I, I often think about in John chapter 6, when Jesus is given the discourse on the Eucharist and people leave him, what do they say? This is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Hmm. Well, I think on many church teachings, it's a hard teaching, who can accept it? The reality is, this is what the church, would do. if the Lord didn't himself say it, we wouldn't be teaching it. We have an obligation to teach with the way that the Lord himself puts forth. And that's not easy and very challenging. And it has, I'm sure, cost people their, their faith with the truth of the church. But this is what the reality of what we believe is. And it comes from Jesus himself. And it's tough. But it is um, necessary. I think Pope Francis has given us a good model in terms of accompaniment of these couples walk the journey with them when they come to us with compassion understanding mercy with charity to walk that journey with them and it's difficult to do that but it's important that when they come to us the first time they come to us they're not feeling judged they're not feeling condemned to be met with open arms to have those harder conversations and as our, our relationship with them uh, kind of develops but um we cannot all of a sudden say well we're going to change this or that teaching because it'd be easier to accept. Once we do that, man, we we really throw a wrench into the whole system, and um, the problems that it causes are, are, are evident. Yeah, Peter. So going back to what we said before in reference to the four elements of a marriage, mm -hmm. let's take two older people, their spouses passed away, right? And they want to get married. Then they're at ease. You know, I mean, the church can't expect them to. Procreate. Of course not. Right. In fact, yeah, in fact, in that in that situation, get the question, Peter. In that situation, you actually would not um, include the promise of consent when it comes to having children, because obviously they're not going to be able to have children because they're they're if they're, if they're in the past the age of uh, of childbearing. So um, it's an important issue, but because the marital act itself, whether it can be whether it's sterile or it's fruitful because it's ordered 
to that reality. Nothing is impeding it because of, you know, that's being imposed from outside, so to speak. Because it's ordered to fruitfulness, even though it's impossible because of age or infirmity, it is still ordered to the to that end. So because it's ordered to it, we still would say that's, that's, that's you know, that's, that's fine. I think it's confusing is that younger people who can't have kids, mm -hmm. technically we're not supposed to marry them, but now older people can't have kids, but it's okay. No, 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 no. If, couple, if, if, a, if a young couple, if he's sterile or she's sterile and can't have children, that is not an impediment to you know, being married. Well, I thought he said previously, like if somebody was uh, handicapped, you know, uh, Paralyzed, they don't have to this issue, but um, there's a difference between sterility and impotence. Sterility means that I simply cannot have children, I just can't conceive, or I can't, or it's impossible because of his issue or her issue. Impotence means I cannot engage in the sexual act because of infirmity, because of the handicap. There's a major difference there. So, when one, we can't even engage in the act, and the second, we simply are sterile because of some medical issue or something of that nature. There's a difference between one and the other. In the first act, first situation with sterility, relations happen, there is a possibility, of, you know, there's an exchange of bodily fluids, and but because of, of infirmity or because of an issue, conception simply cannot happen. In the second issue, there's a physical problem, either on his part or her part, where sexual relations simply cannot happen. It's impossible because it is a serious physical malady <coughs> that causes it um, possible to take place. There's a difference there. You see a difference, Peter, or, or is that still not? Because again, it's like if, if you're younger, and again, say you had an accident and you can't perform the act. Mm -hmm. If you're an old man, you can't perform the act. They're both physical. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I think that with, with, with an older, older man, um, there's medication for that, as far as I understand, some, some situations, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not getting into down a rabbit hole here of, uh, of talking about existing, but, but the reality also, Peter, is that it could be a case where, um, and this will happen, where older couples, in all seriousness, will, will struggle sometimes to have marital relations because of the issues that come with age. And, um, you know, if, if they were able in some capacity to at one point in their marriage have sexual relations, there's no problem with consummation there. They're already, already married. Uh, marriage is consummated. And um, there are different things that can be done as far as I understand uh, to assist in the act itself if there is a struggle uh, on his part or, or her part. Um, but again, that's a whole other question. You know, and they're actually, no serious, again, there are. There are Catholic fertility doctors now who specialize in these specific areas. You know, because I had a couple last year that I married, where he was told by his doctor that he simply was never going to be able to have children because of an issue uh, on his part with sterility. And I refer, I refer him to a doctor who I knew, whose whole ministry, whose whole, whole practice is, is based on helping Catholic couples that are sterile, perhaps find a way through uh, having children through um, not IDF or anything, but other other ways of figuring out what's the issue here and what could help to assist in all of this. We're going to see next two weeks actually 
invited to come in and give you guys a lecture, Dr. Kathy Wither, who is from New York, is the head of Office of Family Life here in New York. Dr. Wither uh, specializes in the issue of birth control, contraception, and NFP. And what we're going to see is that NFP is actually originally was intended to help couples that could not conceive to have children. It's often viewed now in a negative premise of how to not have more children. But actually, NFP is also geared to, naturally speaking, dietary changes, monitoring of the cycle things. And the fact is, the new Apple iWatch has a whole slew of, of, of women's uh, health issues that are specifically geared for figuring out the best time for her and her, and her partner, I guess that, they would, that would phrase it, to, um, to either conceive or not conceive. So even technology has, uh, in a positive way, I think, given people a help in, uh, in those areas. But, um, but it's challenging. But, but you know, medical science, thank God, has, has, has uh, advanced enough, I think, in a lot of different areas to help couples that are um, facing those challenges. I mean, John, maybe you know more about this than I do as, as a doctor, but I think there are, there are some uh, newer, newer things that are perhaps can help couples um, those issues that, that correct John my my not my on the yes yes okay yeah so yeah so hopefully you can get refer people to doctors that can help them when they're facing those those challenging uh, issues okay. but yeah definitely it's a challenging topic for sure so with that wonderful discussion about divorce behind us we want the next wonderful positive topic. One of the biggest challenges that is facing the culture today, and the church is facing it as well in terms of dealing with it in a pastoral nature, is the issue of pornography. It is epidemic, and it is a serious, serious problem today. In the confessional, without any question, gents, not giving anything away or bringing any kind of seal of confidence here, I would say it's the thing that I hear most from people today, both men and women. Um, you know, there is a false conception here, no pun intended, a false thought today that um, pornography is simply a male problem. It is not. It is not. It is as much affecting women now as it is affecting men. You know, and the reality is years ago, if you go to a CD part of town, hope someone sees you undercover, you know, a hat, glasses, you know, sunglasses on, undercover, big, big mustache. To, uh, to go and buy something. Now, on your phone, on your laptop, it's right there in front of you. And we operate under the false assumption that I'm anonymous. Listen, fellas, no one online is truly ever anonymous. You wouldn't have trackers if you were anonymous. Well, if I look for a pair of shoes, I get bombarded for the next three or four weeks with ads for shoes. On, uh, on my different internet search engines. Like, leave me alone. I want the computer. I bought them up on. You know, come on. But um, it's there. And the problem also now is the average age of exposure to pornography is 10. Oh. By accident, usually. By accident. For example, this is one of the most insidious things. The, the um, website for the White House is whitehouse.gov. That's the website. Whitehouse.com is not. 
how many children to appear for on the presidency or the White House put in whitehouse.com and found something very different when the page came up. These companies are into making money and they're going to use everything they can to hook you when you're young. Because if you grab the boy, you have the man. That's the reality. How many marriages today are facing serious problems because of pornography? More and more marriage counselors talk about this. But they see this coming up now, where he has this on his search engine, the wife finds this by accident, and she's horrified at what she finds. The other problem is, it is destroying relationships before marriage. You know, young men whose first sex ed is pornography are being educated in sexual violence, not love. Young women with exposure to this in pornography are being taught to be exploited, to be degraded. This is what men want from you. And it's horrific. NYU, about two years ago, had a thing, an actual in-service workshop, uh, I forget what it actually was with them, but to help young men in their early 20s dealing with, dealing with impotence, with an actual physical person, because for five, six, seven years, they had an online harem of hundreds of women Actually, what was before? Remember, it's a niche for everything. You can find it online. And now, when it's a real physical person you're with, it becomes all of a sudden challenge to measure up or to have this same physical reaction to a person who's not this perfect person that you see on screen, and it's causing enormous problems. Last year, for example, one the major one of the major adult sites in in the country, according to a 2016 uh, study, there were this is unbelievable. There were 500,000 years worth of pornography watched online. Wow. The number of hours equaled half a million years, which in the sense of that. It's 1,715 videos a second. That's insane. It makes more money than baseball, basketball, football, and hockey combined. I mean, those numbers are staggering. 30% of all internet traffic is pornography. Sure. 30%. Yeah, I, I believe it. Every year, the top websites are like Facebook, Google, and Pornhub comes in third. And the top, like, 15 and 20, like six, seven of them that are porn sites. It's an epidemic, guys. It's a serious problem. So how do we handle it? Well, the first thing is, first thing I kind of say, they can, I'm addicted to this. All right, so what does, this, what does addiction mean? When it comes to this, here's the thing. A person may be a periodic user meaning they watch a movie or videos every three or four months. That person is not an addict. They're a periodic user, they have to stop. 
but not a date. You may have somebody who watches adult film, let's say, once a month. They're an habitual user. They use it habitually. They probably can't stop. Try to stop, can't stop. It's a habit. It's an issue. person who watches movies, let's say, once a week, and they really can't stop, it's escalated on them, more, perhaps, more serious stuff, that person is a compulsive user. The addict is a person who virtually every day watches pornography, spends hours with this stuff, begins to fail in their responsibilities to their home, to their life, to their job. They're losing sleep over this. They may be acting out in other ways. That's an addict. Most people today, most young men that struggle with this, fall somewhere in the habitual to compulsive range. That's where most guys fall somewhere in there. Um, so how do we deal with it? The first thing is, and this is anything against chastity, if they ask ourselves, what is the ritual? What starts the kind of slide into this area? Normally, it could be, well, I'm watching a Netflix movie or a series. I know that it have some kind of sexual scene in it that gets the ball rolling, so to speak. And once that starts, it's hard then to hit the pause button. The nuns talk about avoiding the occasion of sin. That's the first step to avoiding sin, period. With sexual sin especially, once things get started, it's very difficult to stop. So, first, what is the ritual that I find myself engaging in that leads in this direction? If I can cut off that first part of it, it can be innocuous. It can be as simple as a news website that I know will have stories of a salacious nature on it that gets things started. What's the or YouTube video or whatever the case may be. And each person's ritual is different. The first, what's the ritual? Second, yeah. Yeah. Most movie today is sexual. I mean, well, there's sexual violence on almost every movie. Yeah. No, it's true. And look, here's the thing. That becomes an issue of asking yourself, okay, why am I watching it? Am I watching it for the purposes of seeing the sexual stuff in it? Or watching it because it's a good movie that happens to have, you know, a scene here or there in it. And even, you know, there's Parents Guide on IMDb, IMDb.com. Um, Netflix will show you at the top of the screen why it's rated TVMA or TV14, you know, substance abuse, whatever. So you know. And then it becomes an issue, okay, am I going to choose to watch this if it's going to cause me problems? And a person who's struggling with this has to be more sensitive to it. A person who's not an alcoholic can walk into a bar, have a couple of drinks, go home, and they're fine. An alcoholic can't walk into a bar ever where it's going to cause them a, a relapse. If a person is struggling with serious sexual sin, they have to be very careful about what they're watching and putting into their mind. Because the reality is that can trigger, easily trigger, a relapse or engagement in this stuff. So it's difficult, because as you're saying, you're right, Peter, most movies today or TV shows have something, because it sells. It sells, it attracts, it always has, it always will. But the fact of the matter is, for a person who's struggling with it, gotta be sensitive to avoiding those things that can put you in a bad place. 
So that's the kind of the first thing is kind of cutting off that part of it. Second um, thing, yeah, yeah. I, I think that, well, I know, I know that there are professionals in the treatment field that would I say know. that the individual who uh, views pornography or a, a pornographic movie or whatever once every four months is addicted. Really? Wow. On the same logic that you gave about the alcoholic who can't go into the bar ever, ever, right. because if they have one drink, they're done. I, 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 I honestly, truly believe that that's really problematic. Yeah. And I guess, you know, looking at it more life. Yeah. Oh, and you only do it three times a year. Right. Yeah, no, fair point. I'm looking at it, you know, what I'm using here in my kind of my metric is how we, how we judge um, when a man's entering seminary. Because almost all of them have some issue with this in their past or their current life. And how do you judge the severity of this in terms of can a man be accepted and work through this with him in formation? Or does he have to take a year or so off before he even enters and work through this? But any involvement with it at all, George, is, is a problem. There's no question about it because it works. It, it, it works your mind, and it affects the same brain receptors as cocaine. There's brain scans on showing that, so it's highly, highly addictive. Um, yeah, and like any kind of addiction, it escalates. What um, what was attractive to a person last month will need more of an intensive thing now, and in an area of sexual sin that can get pretty dark. And um, again, online, you can find anything you want. I mean, the Google search engine, God only knows what Google will see every day being asked to be found, you know? And um, it's a real, real serious issue. Um, and there is actually treatment available. It's a place out in, um, where is the island? Like every summer, they do like a uh, an in-service for priests, deacons, seminarians who are struggling with this in some capacity to give them the tools that are necessary to help you break the cycle of this. Because oftentimes, loneliness, boredom, um, a variety of factors lead into the activity. The question becomes, what am I trying to escape from? The pornography at the end of the, end of the day is an escape from reality. That's what it is. So what am I trying to escape from? So there's triggers, uh, bases of these things, helps a person to overcome this over time. Practicality. Website called Covenant Eyes. Covenant Eyes is a blocker that also has an accountability partner where every day the accountability partner is an email to see what websites you visited. And there's a little number next to it that gives you a tracker of how serious this may have been in the area of sexuality. So for example, in St. Louis, at Kendrick Lennon Seminary, the vice director is kind of a partner for every seminary. He gets every day emailed to him the seminarian's search engine history the previous day. And you find, okay, why was someone so why did this website rank up your higher? You asked the guy. And oftentimes the guy was looking at a article 
about it. Not anything simple. It wasn't an article about reading about it. And because the wording was there, it came up as a, as a serious, as a problem. But if it is a serious issue of pornography uh, being viewed, then they can begin looking at it and saying, how can we handle this and help the guy to overcome these issues? And even getting a phone with no internet access, you know, a dumb phone, as they say, right? Rather than a smartphone. Because most pornography is accessed today via mobile phones. I mean, that's part of the problem is we're carrying around in our pocket a um, pornography store, essentially, because it's right there on, on our phones. So that becomes an issue as well. Technology is a great thing, but not so great when affecting us these ways. Um, if it's a matter of a, of a home computer, getting put the computer in a public space where you can't be alone with it, put it in the living room, put it in out of the den, put it in the kitchen, wherever you can do it, it's going to be, you know, not in a, in a private uh, place. And it could even be a matter of needing to get professional help if it is a serious enough problem. There are doctors now who work in this issue with, um, with helping people that struggle in this area as epidemic and problematic uh, as it is. Right. A follow-up question. Yeah. If a spouse comes up to us and asks us, that their spouse is addicted or whatever. We can't, we're not qualified to answer questions and we just have to refer them to a counselor of some sort, right? Yeah, I mean, if, if they come to you with this issue, I mean, you talk to them about, well, what, you know, what's going to go on, what, what, what we've talked about, what's going to happen here. Um, but it would be a way of, of trying to find out what's, what's kind of, what's going on beneath the surface here, what's kind of causing the person, you know, what's, what's the concern being brought here? Um, oftentimes, a wife will come to you with this issue. I had one case, this was kind of like tragic, an adult, a young woman in her early 20s, was uh, using her dad's iPad for something. Her dad forgot to read search history. And when she went on her dad's iPad and went to search for something, all of this stuff came up. And she said, what do I do? I said, so-and-so, pray, pray for your dad. I said, I can't imagine, don't, 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 do not, like, approach him with this. He might, might kill him, you know. But pray for him and, and ask the Lord to, to uh, give him freedom from this. Imagine a, a daughter. I, think, I, mean, I, can't, I can't even comprehend that. So, so um, it affects everyone in the family in some capacity. That's a real, it's a real serious problem that is, uh, that is being faced right now by society at large. And again... The money behind it, that's the name of the game, fellas. The money behind it is unbelievable. But the exploitation is also off the, red, off the, off the charts. The whole um, whole uh, company or something that was being sued because young women that were involved in movies were um, were, taught, were told that to be in private use by you know like one person looking at these things and instead it's all over the internet. Revenge porn. There are laws now against revenge porn, where a couple was engaged in, you know, making videos of themselves. They break up, and one of them had a revenge posted online. There are laws against that now, because they have to be. Father. Yeah. Just companies pay taxes, right? Depends. <laughs> some of them may be. Some of them may be off, off, the, off, the, off the books. Uh, that's a good question, actually. Some of them may be actually off, offshore. Uh, I'm, just trying to get to the, I'm just trying to get to the point that the, the government does 
receive some certain type of revenue from these companies? They probably do. Probably do in some taxation form. I would think so. I don't know the, the exact numbers behind that, Lucas, but I, they probably do, which is obviously makes cool. it harder. Guys, that how how prevalent it is, and the issues of uh, exploitation, a lot, and the and the societal effects that it has. Hey, John Paul II. So the problem with pornography, he says, not that it covers, you know, that that he says it doesn't. Pornography's problem. Wait, hang on. The problem is that it doesn't show too much; it shows too little. Meaning, it's not showing the person as a soul and a spirit. And a story, and a history, and a parent, and probably children, and you know, it's, there's so much in person that's being rejected in in that. And the famous jo- 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 Joseph Piper, who once said, "The fig leaf does not cover the genitals; it covers the face now." Meaning, we've lost the sense of the dignity of the person lost the sense that each person made an image and likeness. Because of that, lost the sense of the divine spark that exists in every single one of us. So it really is a major problem that we're facing right now in the culture and in society. So it's not happy news. I don't disagree, but it is important for us to get a sense of um, what we're dealing with right now in the culture and in, in the church. Can I, Father? Can I... Yeah, Um so porno- an addiction like pornography, can it reach a point where it's not considered a mortal sin if you lose your ability to choose your free That's will? That's a good question. Yeah. So exactly right. It's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, when a person is, is really in the compulsive, um, addictive nature of pornography, the will is compromised to the point where they are no longer able make a real, a, re, a real free will decision when it comes to these things. There's a compulsive nature to it that kind of overpowers the will. So in those cases, a person is not guilty of moral sin. However, I would still strongly encourage them confession. to go to confession right. weekly if they have to for it. Mm-hmm. Because if sin is the disease, grace is the antidote. And the reality is prayer and confession are two of the best remedies we can have to overcoming uh, this sin, really any sin, frankly, uh, but bringing it to the light, bringing it to the sacrament, and letting God's mercy meet us where our weakness is um, is profound. Mm-hmm. You know, sin does have a vaccine mm-hmm. and full grace, full mercy. So important for us to be aware of that and have hope also. You know, you know, this stuff is difficult and challenging. It's not what you talk about, but it is something which we're facing, but we don't face it with hopelessness. We face it with the reality of helping people to break free of this. And there are amazing stories of people, even athletes, who have struggled with this area and have found freedom. So it doesn't mean if you have this issue, you are consigned to a fate of uh, being addicted to the rest of your life. There can definitely be freedom uh, found in this area, but it affects vocations, it affects marriages, it affects everything. 
so important that we are sensitive to it and are aware of the challenges that are currently uh, being faced by us in this area. Okay, thank you. Have a question or? All right. All right, we're gonna move along here a little bit and um, move into the next area. Before, we, before getting into topics of homosexuality and transgender stuff, more, more fun topics to cover, um, if we ask ourselves, how did we get to this point? How did we get to a point where reality is unreality and unreality is reality? Where if I say that a man can't have children, can't get pregnant, I could be given a fine for being, you know, not sensitive to a person's, uh, I mean, it's insane. It's insane. But how did we get here? How did we get to this, this crazy point? Well, if we look at Catholic teaching, in the Middle Ages, Thomas Aquinas, Bonaventure, the great doctors of the church in the Middle Ages, there was a sense of what was real existed outside of the person. I was aware of my existence, but reality was outside of myself. And I could in some way be put in contact with reality that existed outside of myself. God was in everything. God was in nature. God was in the world around me. And because my nature was fallen, I needed the church to help me to grasp the reality outside of myself. As time went on, we lost a sense of this. In the Reformation, the project of the Reformation, the authority of the church was shattered by that. Because Luther saw a church that was decadent, that was corrupt, and when the church lost her authority, it became hard for a person to rely on the church to help them to engage with what is real. The Renaissance, a period of enormous learning and education and, you know, and, and painting and sculpture, incredible things, and also they realized the beauty and dignity of man. The ancient philosopher Protagoras had the line that man is the measure of all things. The Renaissance motto could have been man is the measure of all things. But along with that came the reality of eliminating God from the equation. That man makes the rules. Man makes up what is real and what is not real. So even in the Renaissance, we see the beginnings of what we have now. As time went on, kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of a view of, of history here, so kind of a very brief um, kind of a synthesis of things. As time went on, with amazing discoveries in science, which has done incredible things to help bring healing to people, curing of diseases, unbelievable benefits, but also science in the 17th century, 18th century, as things were improved, what became to be sensed was that God had pushed the margins. Religion becomes a private thing. With the revolutions in America and France, especially in France, where it really was an uh, anti-clerical, anti-God revolution, God was pushed way to the margins of reality. The U.S., until recently at least, has remained a religious country. With France, most of Europe, has embraced atheism. Most cathedrals in Europe are now uh, museums more than they are houses of worship because there's a completely complete um, loss of the sense of this. Isaac Newton, who believed that God created the natural world, that God 
left did it run on its own. The watchmaker God, right? Sets in motion, and then sets back. It's a totally different view than the God of Christianity who is involved in the minutia of our daily life. So all of these things began to show that there's a real problem here. Rousseau, who said that man is born good, but society corrupts him. The church corrupts him. All these things outside of it does. Marx and Engels, Nietzsche, the atheist philosophers of the 1920th centuries, again, talking about the, the destruction of God. Nietzsche said God is that you killed him. So realizing there was a definite loss of the sense of faith. 20th century, you have Freud and psychology, where God and faith are simply the, the um, reflexes of weak people looking for answers to things. You had the world wars, all of this stuff that kind of created this loss of a sense of humanity. And now you have people that say life is meaningless. Postmodernism. If life is meaningless, has no meaning, then reality can be manipulated in any way that I want. If there is no meaning, there is no reality. And what is reality? What is, what is truth? Truth is the meeting of my mind with reality. If there is no reality, there can be no truth. If I lose a sense of reality, I can say anything I want, that a man is a woman, that a woman is a man, that all these crazy things that are happening today. It makes it really easy to lose a sense of human nature, lose a sense of our common humanity. All of these things are shattered because of it. And that leads us to our moment right now. It has been 800 years in the making. The current madness of our age is not a new thing or recent development. It just seems that way. Looking at history, this is our trajectory over the last eight centuries, leading us to this moment of essential, essential cultural madness we're facing right now. One of the issues that we're going to face with a lot is that of homosexuality. You're going to face it, gentlemen, in the parish. You're going to face it, probably your own families right now. A real serious issue. 30 years ago, the DSM, the Diagnostic Manual of Psychological you know, Illnesses, considered homosexuality to be a psychological illness. What changed wasn't the science. What changed was the politics. There's a book called Making Gay Okay that highlights this whole thing. And you see how it was essentially a movement of politics and pressure to get the DSM and the APA to change their, their um, categorization of things. Now, and quickly, also think about it. Barack, Barack Obama, in the first election uh, 12 years ago, President Obama said, as a candidate at that point, he believed a marriage was between one man and one woman. Less than a decade later, the same president lit up the White House in rainbow colors, yeah. celebrating the legal creation of a right to marriage for same-sex couples. So that was kind of a quick turnaround. And it was, you know, it's, it was not to get into politics here, because I'm going to get, I'm gonna get that, this rabbit hole, but it was Vice President Biden who was the one who actually kind of pressured him to do that. And Biden also, by the way, before one of the first gay marriages in the country when it was legalized. So, you know, Protestants look at us, we're anti-Catholic, 
and some of our Catholic elected officials, and must shake their head at us to see how are these Catholics real, you know, what's going on here? Things they think that they, they advocate for, things that they're supporting, the real problem for, uh, for Catholics in general when it comes to politics, because we have a really bad record of um, supporting a lot of the things that the church has been against for, well, forever, frankly. That's a different discussion for a different uh, different class. But um, little sidebar there. At any rate, the issue of homosexuality, though, was kind of supported in that as, as our culture embraced marriage without children and contraception, the idea of marriage being unity and procreate was separated. If you're, if you're, if you're contracepting in your marriage, you're sterilized, or whatever the case may be, what is different in your marital act than a, than a marital act amongst two homosexuals? Both are closed to life. Both are for the purposes of pleasure more than anything else. And you lose a sense of the connection of unity and procreative. It's easy for a couple to say, hey, you know what, a couple of them that it's gay. God bless them, they're doing fine by themselves. And also they'll say, well, they're so into one another. They're so, so good together. They're so in love with one another. Here's the deal, fellas. Our passions, because of a fallen nature, are corrupt. Okay? Our passions are judged in light of the gospel. Our passions are lined up with gospel values, then they're good. If they're not, then they're, 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 they're evil. But be very careful how we look at passion. Passion can be a very thorny thing if I'm looking at it carefully. And the amount of pressure placed upon the culture now when it comes to these issues is enormous. If I say these things tonight, and a person who is not agreeing with these things hears me, I could be sued, I'd be canceled at best, and I'd be sued at worst. The idea of a discussion about these things completely falling apart. Cancel culture is one of the worst things that has emerged in modern times. If I can't have a discussion with somebody, have a debate with somebody about these issues and simply name-calling, the problem. By the way, if ever you're in a debate with somebody and they resort to name-calling, or they resort to ad hominem attacks. It means you've won the debate. You've won. But if they can't engage you on principles, if they can't engage you on basic facts, it means they have nothing to stand on. And their name calling, their histrionics, their negative reaction to you is simply because they can't answer your objections. So that's, you know, the, the, the last resort of a scoundrel is name calling. And of course, today, you know, we have that going on quite often. In, um, in culture. It's a terrible thing. It's, it's a real serious problem that uh, we're facing. All right. The reason why governments grant benefits to married couples when it comes to taxation, inheritance laws, hospital visitation, they grant uh, benefits to marriage because marriages produce children and it benefits society to have good, solid families. We know from statistics that when children are raised in two-parent households, mom and dad, a couple mentalities there, they don't engage in risky behavior, they don't engage in acts that are going to be compromising for society, and we've really shattered that now. The belief is that a household of two men, two women, just as good as a household of mom and dad of different genders. It's just not 
true. But again, if we say this today, all kinds of problems that emerge because of that. So this is tough, difficult stuff, and it's challenging up to bring forward, but not keep going with our eyes closed to um, the reality of this. All right. Also, the idea of um, the idea of, of monogamy. In 2004, out of Chicago, there was a study done looking at a population in Chicago, and the study found that 43 percent homosexual men living in Chicago had 60 sexual partners. 18 percent had between 31 and 60 partners. All total, 61 percent of the area's homosexual population were more than 30 sexual partners, and half of them ended up with STDs or STIs because of it. So monogamy is not something which is um, inherent in the gay culture and the gay subculture that exists around us. Now, all that being said, it is very important for us when we engage with people that are homosexual in our parish ministries and our work to realize I'm dealing with a person in front of me. In our work as counselors, in our work as men of God, we deal with people, not problems. We treat people, not problems. And because of that, charity and mercy and understanding are essential when it comes to this. My first parish, when I was a Sacred Heart in Monroe, I had a guy who was at Mass every weekend. Never in the communion, but Mass every weekend he'd be there. One day he called me. He came in with him and his, his partner, who was dying of cancer. For the next few months, we talked, we prayed together. I ministered as much as I could to the two of them. I engaged them not as two gay men, but as two men who could love one another, there was a good friendship here. It was caring here. It was love here, frankly. So I wanted to be able to treat them as human beings in front of me. I remember after our first meeting, one of them said, Father, you know, I wasn't expecting this kind of a reaction. And I said, well, how could it be? And the thought is, I'm going to be condemned, judged, treated with contempt. No. But they knew your life at home was not what the church wanted them to do. They knew it was not what the church wanted them to do living in that way. But the reality is, as a priest of God, my first obligation is to treat them with love and mercy and compassion. Now, when they got civilly married and they had to bless their rings, that I couldn't do. Because now I'm sanctioning in some way their marriage. But it didn't matter at that point. Walking the journey with them, being present to them, through their compassion and Christ-like attention and love was the important thing. It's really important that we don't um, get blinded by ideology either. I've heard some pretty rough things about them just two minutes ago, I know, but the reality is that in dealing with them in general, it's very important that mercy and compassion how we handle real-life, real-world situations um, these situations. Any questions about any of this stuff so far? I can have you tonight. I know it's not yes, easy. Yes, yes, Father. I, I'm, I will go back to the same issue with the heterosexual couple that because of health reasons,
uh, are not engaging, they're living as brothers and sisters, mm -hmm. about this homosexual couple that for the same reason, uh, health reason, they cannot engage in, in any uh, sexual act. Mm -hmm. and they are not married by the church, but they still want to receive communion. And not a problem. Wanna... If they're living as brother and sister, brother and brother, I guess in this case, brother and brother, without any kind of, uh, I'd be funny about it, it's, it's the truth. Um, and no, no kind of sexual um, relationship, there is no reason in my mind they can't come to communion. Because there isn't anything wrong going on in a relationship. However, Father, however, yeah. don't they need to repent of their prior behavior? Well, sure. If they were, if they were active homosexuals, then going to the confession would be, of course, absolutely. But um, and even getting married in a simple sense would cause a bit of an issue because you're still getting married in some kind of a sense here, which is an affront to natural law, not only, you know, um, the moral law of the church, but, you know, marriage is between two people of different genders, even in a civil sense. The law can do whatever it wants to say. doesn't make it right. So to get married even civilly, I would say it would be an issue that I want to discourage them from engaging in. But the real issue here, more than anything else, is Lucas is bringing up, is living as you know two celibate, chaste men who are sharing um, a home together. There's no reason um, there'll be a problem there. I should not, no, they should not adopt children. They should not adopt anybody. That's another issue. But um, if it's simply a matter of two guys living together, sharing, they're roommates essentially. So they after all, they have to do a confession and and uh, bring it up with their uh, pastor. Right. So it's something which, in most cases, it really isn't an issue. The issue would be if they're, they're married or they're whatever, and they're engaging in, in acts of homosexual intercourse, that would be a problem, and that would be an issue that would have to be addressed um, sacramentally or in a different, a different sphere. But, yeah, I mean, those are things that are not problem. But usually, when you have these issues, there are situations where um, the two guys are engaging in, in homosexual acts together that become the problem on a variety of factors. All right, you know what? I think we've kind of hit our, our mark tonight, haven't we? Yeah. And it was heavy at night, so I, I apologize if it hasn't been, but all things are, are real issues. The next two weeks, fellas, I'm gonna be uh, zooming in with you as the weather is gonna be covering issues of NFP and contraception and issues of that nature. For the next two weeks, we're gonna be having uh, classes together with her leading us in those classes. She's an expert in this area, so I see her expertise when it comes to those topics. So, reading assignments. For next week, which is 28, I'm gonna ask you to read a short encyclical, all the six to my name, That's the reading for the, for the um, 28th. And then for the fifth, I'm going to ask you to read the book, Medicine and Christian Morality, pages 228 to 257. So, my is next week, 28th, on the 5th. It's going to be Medicine and Christian Morality, 228 to 257. It'll give you a good background there. Then we have the 12th, we're off for Columbus Day. So we're going to reemerge here together in the fifth grade classroom. 
Michigan on the uh, 19th of October. And we're going to finish up marriage stuff and transition into medical ethics, looking at end of life issues when we reemerge from our uh, two guest lectures and our Columbus Day break. So moving along here at a decent clip. Um, I'm going to email you guys all of this, all of the PowerPoint stuff that will be given to you for the uh, lectures, the next two classes, so you'll have that. And I'll be joining you guys because she's amazing. She does a great job. And the guys that last year um, enjoyed her immensely, so I think it'll be good to have her come in and teach you guys um, as well this year. Any questions? Yeah. Hmm? Will the homily be due after those after those classes? Yes, yeah, so the 19th. The 19th of the homily will be due. Anybody else? Thanks, guys. I appreciate your input tonight. Our conversation it was a good, uh, good discussion. So hopefully, we'll continue with these talk, these talks as we kind of go through the next uh, few months of lecture and uh, and learning. All right. So we'll see you all next week. As we learn about the weather, her wisdom will be shared with us. God bless, guys. Have a good night. Good I'll night. See you in a week. Good night. Okay.